one of the values of Waterstone, that is something we want to be known for in our community, is what we call culture care. It's on our website. It's worded this way. Waterstone is culturally engaged, not retreating from our society and world, but equipping people to make a positive impact in all their spheres of influence. Culture care. So those last three weeks, we've been in a series uh, under that framework of culture care, engaging our culture, specifically around the label that's thrown around now all over our culture, the label evangelical. And so we've titled this series, What is an Evangelical Christian? And what you've heard so far is that we don't define that politically, nor do we define that culturally or socially. In other words, it's not how we vote. It's not how we live. We define it theologically, our doctrine, our theology, what we believe. And we believe, first, that an evangelical is someone who believes that Jesus Christ and him crucified is the way to God. Secondly, we believe that the Holy Spirit and his ministry lives in our church. It's what makes the church different than the Elks Club. The Spirit is here, advancing God's kingdom in and through us. And then finally, an evangelical believes in Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the Word of God. We believe the Bible's not just a book, but a voice, the Father's voice to us. And so today, we've asked our own Elliot Campbell to come, our student ministries pastor. I know there's some people in the room that like him up here. Yeah. Oh. That doesn't sound too good to me, Elliot. (laughs) What you need to know about Elliot is he's a graduate of the University of Virginia. Second, you need to know he holds the Master of Divinity degree from Denver Seminary. Lastly, you need to know something really cool that's been going on. Elliot and his wife, Madison, have become national leaders in the Alpha Youth Movement. We run the Alpha course here at Waterstone. It's a, it's a series of the big questions of life, a course to meet together in a safe place and have God meet you at the end of your question marks. It's just a great course, and it's been going in the, in the youth ministries throughout our, the world, and El, uh, Madison and Elliot have been leaders in helping the Alpha Youth uh, course spread throughout youth ministry. And what's been really cool of late is there's a, a partnership that's growing between Alpha and another program that we always encourage you to check out called the Bible Project. Alpha and the Bible Project are partnering up to produce uh, discipleship videos. They'll even be piloted among our own youth here at Waterstone. So we're really excited about what God's doing. Would you welcome with me Elliot Campbell to come speak this morning? (laughs) Hey, good morning. There is a comedian named Emo Phillips who uh, tells a story, and it kind of goes like this. He says, once I saw a guy on a bridge about to jump, I said, don't do it. He said, nobody loves me. I said, God loves you? Are you religious? He said, yes. I said, Christian or Jew? The man said, Christian. I said, me too. A Protestant or Catholic? He said, Protestant. I said, me too. What denomination? He said, Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? 
He said, Northern Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Baptist conservative and Northern Baptist liberal. He said, Northern Baptist conservative. I said, me too. Northern Baptist conservative Great Lakes region or Northern Baptist conservative Eastern region? He said, Northern Baptist conservative Great Lakes region. And I said, me too. Northern Baptist conservative Great Lakes Region Council of 1879 or Northern Baptist Conservative Great Lakes Region Council of 1912? He said, Northern Baptist Conservative Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. I said, die, heretic, and pushed him over. <laughs> I'm really excited to, one or two people kind of come to the party late there. Um, I'm really excited to, to continue our series. Like Larry said, um, what is an evangelical Christian? It's part of a backdrop we want to do here at Waterstone called Culture Care. And today I get to look at how Scripture and our specific reading of Scripture has influenced us as evangelicals. Um, so before we do that, I want to pause and take a minute to look at where we are, our cultural moment, um, and how we got here. So if you are someone who falls under the umbrella of Christianity, right, so that's kind of orthodox expression, Catholic or Protestant, chances are you'll find this fairly interesting. Um, And I'm glad that you're here and you'll be part of this conversation. But if you are here and you're not actually sure where you are on the spectrum of faith, um, if you're even interested in spirituality, I still think this conversation is relevant. In light of last election cycle, in light of anything that you might read on any major news outlet, Evangelicals are a group um, that play in a culture and should be playing into culture. I want to ask why, how, and specifically, how do we read Scripture in a way that speaks into that? So if you would, come with me. Um, I'm going to be using as my primary uh, kind of source a book called Church History in Plain Language. So if you're interested in what I'm saying, uh, or you even want to fact check me, that's great. Uh, it's actually, uh, it's, it's a well-known book um, that many seminaries around the U.S. use. It's really easy to understand. Um, we'll be looking specifically at Protestants, that last group I said. But kind of a fun fact about this book, Bruce Shelley um, uh, is the author of the book. He actually used to be an elder here at Waterstone. So he is a true Waterstoner. It's cool that his book is really used uh, throughout the U.S. and North America. Um, But that was my primary source. So in 1910, 109 years ago, uh, there was a wealthy oil man from Southern California who decided to fund a project that was ultimately called The Fundamentals. The Fundamentals are 12 books that essentially covered the essentials of the Christian faith. And these books were uh, not sold, they were distributed throughout the entire world. From missionaries abroad to ministers here at home and lay people who run the church in between. These books covered what does it mean to believe in Jesus and be a Protestant. Now, like any group that forms, you cannot have a group form without dividing at some point. And that happened 10 years later. So 1910, this project gets funded, the fundamentals get published and and, um, distributed. And in 1920, there starts to be a split. And it happens in our country's best institutions and universities. University of Chicago and Yale and Harvard, Princeton, all the schools start to see this split. The split fundamentally comes down to one key issue. And the question is how to read the Bible. Now, there are two groups in this split. 
The first group is the modernist, and the second group are the fundamentalist. But I want to pause, because you and I hear, rightly so, fundamentalist, and certain connotations come to mind. Fundamentalism then was not the same as fundamentalism now. Fundamentalism now has kind of gotten a bad rap, whether they deserve it or not, for um, kind of majoring in the minors, so to speak. In other words, being pretty uh, strong on uh, decisions around uh, what we would consider here at Waterstone non-essentials. Things like, do you drink beer or do you hate it? Do you uh, get a tattoo or do you never let it, you know, any ink come on your, not even from a pen to your skin? That's kind of what we think oftentimes of fundamentalism nowadays. At least that's kind of the stereotype that we have. But this was not the fundamentalism of the 1920s. The fundamentalists disagreed with the modernists because they thought that Scripture worked like a historical document. That's the way that we read it. Current events, technology, cultural trends, none of that changes God's revelation. And then the modernists, on the other hand, they disagreed. They had an evolutionary philosophy to religion. They thought that God's revelation, and still believe, God's revelation does shift and change according to current events, theology, trends, and culture. And so what happens is at the top university levels, you begin to see a polarizing. Left pulls left, right pulls right. You've never seen that before. Left pulls more left, right pulls more right. What's interesting, though, is that continues to happen. So 1920. Fast forward to 2019. Now what you and I observe, if you look at church movements and church trends, is that we essentially see a liberal Protestantism and culture, I'm sorry, conservative Protestantism. Now I want to be clear, I am uh, brushing in uh, broad strokes here, painting in broad strokes, and I know that in our audience today we have both groups represented. But generally speaking, what we saw, the divide that came over how we read Scripture, formed into the modernist and the fundamentalist, has evolved, ironically, into conservative and liberal Protestantism. Where now, liberal Protestantism tends to expand their reading of Scripture in order to keep up with new cultural norms. It's important to say often the goal there is inclusion, which is not a bad goal, by the way. But that is how liberal Protestantism tends to read Scripture, expansively, uh, evolutionarily, maybe that's a word, um, in nature. Conservative Protestantism still reads it in in a historical document, but oftentimes the goal is to kind of protect theology, preserve purity of our thoughts on God. So often conservative Protestantism will look for amens and affirmation to barricades or even blockades it's created with secular culture. Now here's why this is an issue. Because we ultimately are looking for Scripture, God's Word, to confirm our bias and justify our beliefs. You see, in both groups, we're the acting agent Does that make sense? Both groups would say, I have a belief, a disposition, ideologically, maybe you lean more liberal, you like change, or maybe you lean more conservative, you kind of like the way things are, and to preserve that. But when we come to God's word, and we're the acting agent, looking for it to confirm our bias or justify our beliefs, 
We've got the cart before the horse. It's classic confirmation bias. You want the Bible to say something that you agree with, and as a result, you walk away thinking it does. Now, we can see that trend, but I want to play out why this is actually a big problem. Um, one of the first examples that comes to mind is, uh, happened in the early parts of the 1600s. Uh, while Europe was colonizing North America, showing up and being like, this is awesome, and now it's ours. And the first Americans were kind of like, what? What was happening was you had different countries going to North America and, um, and kind of making you know, a colony for their country and relaying information and goods and so forth. Well, the, specifically, the English settlers that came to Jamestown did this as well, just like everyone else. But when they got there, they took a book of the Bible and applied it to their lives in the same way, confirming their bias, justifying their beliefs. See, they wanted to really colonize North America and at that time, modern-day Virginia. So what they did was they took the book of Joshua, a book where God tells his people the Israelites, to go into a new land, uh, Canaan, and to conquer the Canaanites. So there's this uh, massive amount of literature from the early 1600s by English settlers that basically read a descriptive account of the Bible, meaning this is describing what happened as prescriptive. Think of a prescription the doctor gives you to go get and carry out to take something to do something. They read a descriptive account prescriptively in order to justify what they wanted the Bible to say. And honestly, as a result, you read all this literature that says, we're the new Israelite, Israelites, this land we've just conquered, this is uh, the, the modern day Canaan, and these are the Canaanites, and God is calling us to slaughter these people and take it in his name. It's ludicrous. And honestly, this is a part of church history we have, to, we have to look at and say, this is ugly. It's dark. They slaughtered children and women and men in the name of using God's word to justify their own beliefs. We should be uncomfortable with this. So fast forward. Fast forward uh, what, almost uh, 200 years, 175 years or so, and we get to my main man, Thomas Jefferson, all right? Big Thomas Jefferson fan, wrote the Declaration of Independence, big fan of that thing. He founded my university, my alma mater, as, uh, as Larry said, third president of the United States. Well, Jefferson did this as well. Some of you have heard of the Jefferson Bible, where Jefferson basically found passages in Scripture that made him feel uncomfortable or he didn't like, and as a result, got rid of them. I want to show you a quote from the Smithsonian Magazine that really sums this up well. It starts with this. Jefferson was devoted to the teachings of Jesus Christ. I love that. But he didn't always agree with how they were interpreted by biblical sources, including the writers of the four Gospels whom he considered to be untrustworthy correspondents. Pause. It is somewhat funny to read this, right? I love that it opens with Jefferson was devoted to Jesus, but just didn't like really the stuff he said or who said he said it. But the reality is, it's easy for us in 2019 to sit back in our kind of plush maroon chairs and chuckle at the silly Thomas Jefferson. 
The truth is, is that if you engage God's word, you will end up here as well. You'll feel tensions between reality, your life, anecdotes, and the world in which God speaks to, being and us pursuing. If you really engage God's word, if you don't come to it just to justify or affirm your worldview, and you say, what does it say? It will make working in the secular sphere difficult at times. It will make tensions that you won't always know how to say, I know God's word says this, but I just don't like it, understand it, or agree with it. The truth is the tension that Jefferson feels should be felt by us too. Because God's word doesn't pull punches and it doesn't apologize. It is true and it's good, but it is what it is. And in our setting, it is challenging at times. The question is, what do we do about that? This is what Jefferson decides to do. The quote continues on to say this. Jefferson created his own gospel by taking a sharp instrument, perhaps a penknife, to existing copies of the New Testament and pasting up his own accounts of Christ's philosophy. Jefferson said, you know what? There are parts of the Bible that I don't understand or I don't like or I have a hard time accepting. And so they're out. It's easy for us to say, how arrogant to come to God's word. If you're in here and you're a believer, it's easy to say that. If you're not, then it's probably like, I understand it and I get that too. But the problem is, well, Jefferson was bold enough to pick up a pair of scissors. I don't think what he does, or did, I mean, is really too far from what we do today. You know, if anything, this may be the strongest argument that our founding fathers did in fact hold modern Christian values. Have I stepped on enough toes yet? Because I got two more. All right. Um, So now I want to fast forward to this week. In fact, uh, last week and the week before. I came across two more examples of how I see this in a modern setting for you and I today. The first was on Twitter. I was um, reading a, a well-known worship leader as he posted a question. He, he would self-identify as a, a liberal Christian or liberal Protestant, so he's very much easily in this category. He would say so himself. He basically asked the question, was Jesus asexual, right? We don't have any accounts in Scripture of Jesus um, you know, with anything but platonic relationships with men and with women. So his argument was, was Jesus asexual? And then the argument that came from that was, if Jesus was in fact asexual, then we would classify him in the sexual minorities category. And you and I know that as the LGBTQ community. Now, regardless of what you think about sexual theology, and I'm sure we have many different views in the room, I hope we can all agree that you don't just come to God's word and walk away thinking Jesus was, was in the LGBTQ community and he wanted us to know that. Does that make sense? In other words, that is, that is our confirmation bias. It's reading God's word, wanting it to say what we say, and walking away thinking it does, or at least it might. Now, if you're on that side of the spectrum... Don't start smiling just yet, because I'm walking over there. So that's the modern liberal Protestantism. Um, I also came across an article by the Washington Post this week. 
that, um, again, another prominent uh, Christian uh, 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 voice in our culture, not liberal, but would self-identify as conservative. And the Washington Post quoted uh, this person as saying, immigration is not a Bible issue. Now, I want to pause. Because some of you are thinking, yeah, but, you know, but government, we have to have laws. And I get that. I'm actually not arguing with that. What I want to say is this was not a government official. This is a person who speaks on behalf of God's word, not their own. And they are saying that the Bible, with, by the way, every single law um, uh, diction and section in Scripture speaks to the foreigner and how we are as Christians to treat them. Again, this is not a government person, so I'm putting that to the side. This person that speaks on behalf of the Bible said, immigration is not a Bible issue. Okay, now I've stepped on everybody's toes, so we can all kind of wiggle them out. But the reality is, the issue in both groups is that we are using the Bible to confirm our bias and to justify our beliefs. And as evangelicals, as painful as it is at times, we have been called and we have always said that we allow the Bible to speak into our lives rather than choosing to speak over its own voice. Some of you are thinking, dude, your sermon's on Scripture and you haven't even brought up any Scripture. And that's okay because we're about to. So let's let uh, the Bible speak for itself. I want to look at uh, Hebrews 4, verse 12. We're only going to look at one verse today. We're going to keep it simple, but there's a lot packed in this. Thanks for staying with me. Hebrews 4, 12 says this. For the word of the God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The word of the Lord. Thank you. <laughs> Let's start with this. The author of Hebrews says God's word is alive and active. It's different than any other word you and I have. There are a multitude of brilliant writers and excellent lecturers and TED Talks. There are great men and women who are supreme thinkers, but the word of God is active is alive, it's different. I, I think about, speaking of supreme thinkers, the, the famous. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. And as long as I've lived, which, to be fair, is not as long as some of us, I've never known someone to prioritize daily time in Plato's word. And honestly, if you searched far and wide enough, you'd find a nerd that did. But I've never known a global movement that went around the world sacrificing lives and money and time and energy because of their time in Plato's word. God's word is actually alive. It's different. It's funny, too, uh, to look at different translations. If you have like a Bible app on your phone, you can kind of click see how different um, groups of intelligent men and women have translated scripture kind of with different nuances. Oftentimes, this word active actually gets translated as effective. It's the idea that God doesn't need you to speak up and submit your revisions to his word. He doesn't need you to twist your kid's arm to try to get them to see God's truth in his word. 
The idea that God's word is effective gives us permission to sit down and listen because it can accomplish the thing for which God wants it to accomplish. God's word is different. It continues on to say this. God's word is sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. This is surgical language. This is language that says very clearly that God's word cuts things out. It challenges our worldview. It confronts our attitudes. God's word speaks straight to the heart of our, of, of our worldview, of us, of the issue. God's word gets us to identify the things that we cling so closely to with white knuckles and affirms us that there's a loving God ready, looking, and wanting to receive the things that we hold so closely without wanting to surrender. I got to be honest. This is not the book that you cuddle up next to some latte art and post on Instagram. This is God's word. Now, by the way, I love coffee. If you drink coffee and read the Bible, that's great. But sometimes we forget that this book can cut in order to bring healing. Finally, this is what the verse says. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. It's funny, um, I didn't catch this the first time I read it, the first several times, but the author of Hebrews is making a really wonderful point for you and I. See, the last section of the verse we looked at, God says very clearly, uh, or the author of Hebrews says, that God's word penetrates our spirit and our soul, our spiritual reality, and our bone and marrow, our physical reality. And here it says our thoughts, mental, and our attitudes are emotional. Now, you might be thinking, yeah, but it says the heart. But they understood heart differently than I and probably you understand heart. Heart was the core of everything in our lives and where it flowed out of. Which meant it's actually wrapping to say it's our spiritual, our physical our mental and our emotional life that God's word speaks right to and conforms and challenges and confronts. God's word brings holistic health to our lives if we let it. Now this is challenging. It's challenging because we are confronting with the fact that if we come to God's word and cuddle up next to it, we might be misusing it at times. We, we are recognizing that God's word is alive, it's different, and it's effective. It doesn't need us to stand up in its place. But it's also surgical, and it's holistic. Now, for some of you, for all of us, who say we believe in Jesus, which is great, and if that's not you, that's okay, this is all free of charge. You can kind of sit back and relax, because I am not confronting you today. But for those of us that say, no, I do believe in God's word, we have to ask the question, does it work like this in our own lives? Does it challenge the way you see the world? I don't care whether you're red team or blue team. Does it agree entirely with your political party? Is God's word in your life kind of like the perfect 
puppy. It's cuddly, it's compliant, and it keeps its nose out of things that will start trouble. Because that's not God's word. And if the answer to that is yes, then you're probably misusing God's word. For those of you who are here today, and you were tricked into coming or dragged here by a boyfriend or a coworker or a parent, you were probably asking a question that I want to affirm because it's a right question to ask right now, which is, why in the world would I let it work in my life like that? In fact, I think that actually applies to everyone in the room. Whether you brought someone and you're shrinking your seat thinking, why did I have them come this week? Or whether you're the person that got tricked into coming and you're thinking, man, you have done an excellent job of persuading me to not read the Bible. <laughs> like, seriously, great job. It's important that we ask the question, but why would we allow God's work, word to work in our lives like this? There's obviously a reason that globally speaking, socioeconomically speaking, racially, men and women age, that people find something different in God's word. I think that's a great question. And my answer is because we need the healing hands of a surgeon. We need the healing hands of a surgeon. See, some of you are thinking, oh, that's a great buildup, but I don't really buy in, to be totally honest with you. I mean, I like that we need the healing hands of a surgeon, whatever, but that's not for me. And I just want to speak to that. Because you might be strawmanning what I think God's word does in your life. I'm not saying, here, you need more rules and regulation. That's what you need. I'm not saying that you need more red tape in your life and religious guilt to talk to a counselor about. What I'm actually saying is I believe God's word brings life into our life. It causes fruit to come out of our lives. It silences anxieties and fears and depression. It speaks to crippling thoughts and judgmental views of other people or ourselves. It's not about greater regulation. It's about greater thriving. And that's the invitation. Bottom line. If you walk out of here and you don't get anything else, I want you, I'm asking if you would, to take this with you. God's word is not our tool for justification. In other words, to justify our beliefs. It's his tool for our sanctification. God's word is not our tool for justification. To justify the things we believe. It's his tool for our sanctification. Sanctification is kind of a big word. It's a suitcase word, which just to be honest, uh, whatever field of expertise, whether you're a counselor or a teacher or a doctor or a dentist, um, whether you work at a coffee shop, there are suitcase words. In other words, it's a lot of thoughts and concepts you pack into one word so you can kind of get a thought across. Now, that's great if you grew up in the church, but if you're not really sure where you are on that spectrum of belief, then sometimes this word can kind of trip us up. So really simply put, sanctification, it means God making you and I more like his son Jesus. Sanctification summed up simply is God making you and I more like his son Jesus. I want to be clear, sanctification is our hearts 
reflecting God's more than our own. It doesn't mean you lose your personality. That's not what happens. You don't all of a sudden not like golf or cancel your, you know, subscription to whatever history magazine. We still are ourselves, but we come into full bloom in the life that God gives and leads us towards. You know, it's funny, looking back at Hebrews 14, we don't have to put it up there, just to say this. God's word is, say that with me if you remember it, God's word is alive. Oh, man. Thank you for students. Appreciate that. Let's try it one more time. God's word is alive. Thank you so much. God's word is alive. What's beautiful about this is the author of Hebrews is actually pointing back to the beginning of of the creation narrative of Genesis. You see, the Jewish people believed that the words that we spoke actually created things, but more importantly, they believed that God's word was the creative means for all life that we have. The author of Hebrews is telling us that if we let God's word in, he will produce life in us. By the way, you might have caught that a couple times I'm using the preface, if we let God's work, or if we let God's blank, God's word. I say this to my students all the time. I say that Jesus is a gentleman. By and large, there are few exceptions in history and in the Bible, but in general, Jesus doesn't just kick down the door of your life and plop his feet up on your ottoman in your living room. And I say that because I think we can actually get a false sense of security, that if there's something God really wants me to know, he'll make it clear for me. But what I see is Jesus actually being a gentleman in our lives, that if we say no thank you, he respects our will. And so we have to choose, do I want his word in my life? And I don't want to sugarcoat it. I don't want to downplay it. God's word often hurts, but always heals. And that is what God invites us to. He invites us to the life change that comes from submitting to what he says and not using what he says to justify what we believe. If there's one thing I know, though, about someone's word, it's that who the someone is that gives it to us matters most. In other words, you can have a friend that's fallen through and borrowed money and never paid back, says they'll be there on time and never is, says they'll pick you up or help you out and they don't show up. And that person's word's not very helpful. It's not trustworthy. Whose word it is matters a lot. Uh, when I talk to my students, again, I often have found working here at Waterstone for the last five years that there's two basic categories doubt falls into. The first is, is God there? And the second is, can I trust him? Some of you today, you're still in this part of, of that uh, doubt. And that's okay. And I don't mean it to be patronizing and say, well, someday you'll be here. I don't know. I mean, that's actually probably your choice and the Holy Spirit's work. But if you're there, that's okay. We believe God's patient with your process. That's part of the reason we do Alpha, because it actually doesn't coerce people to a certain point. It lets them ask questions and the Spirit meet them in that space. But for others of you, you're in this space, which is asking the question, can I trust him? Is he good? 
today I will suggest that we discover that God is good, that we taste and see that the Lord is good, like the psalmist says, by beginning to step out and see if his word holds up one step after another. You know what's funny? Hebrews 4.12, really pretty direct, right? No apologies. Here it is. It's in a bigger section where God is also equally direct with his people, telling them that they need to rest. What he says is rest is so important for you, and I care about you so much, I'm being really direct and serious about your need to just rest. God wants you to trust him. He wants you to see his word as his tool to bring life and thriving inside and not as our tool to justify what we already believe and think. If you have any interest in doing this, if you're thinking maybe, maybe, maybe I'll try it out, that's okay. The maybe's great. I love maybes. If you're thinking I'll, I'll do a little, okay, then I want to throw out some suggestions for what you might be able to do. Here, here they are right here. The three things I'd say is, one, this is simple, but begin reading God's word. Just try it out. If you've never read God's word, if you've never read the Bible, I'm kind of using those synonymously, you've probably picked up, I would suggest starting with the book of John. There's two halves of the Bible, the, the, uh, the Hebrew Bible we call the Old Testament and then the New Testament. So basically the first half, the second half. The second half is like Jesus onward is the easy way to remember it. And then there's, um, there's four biographies of Jesus. We call them Gospels. But there are four biographies. The last one is John. And I would say, why don't you start there? That's great. Um, you know, I don't know about you. I like the, like, page turner. Okay, it makes me feel good about myself. I'm like, oh, I just read a page of something. Um, but you know what I really hate is, like, carrying my Bible everywhere. So I'm a big fan of the YouVersion Bible app. It's entirely free. All the content on there is entirely free. This is actually what the Bible app looks like on your phone. I won't be offended. Take out your phone right now if you're up for it or do it later, whatever, and download this. I'll give you the password to our Wi-Fi. I, seriously, I, I want you to get this. And here's why. It's because God's word changes us. And, and I don't ever want to carry around my, my Bible when I'm waiting in line at King Supers to get my cold cuts from the guy who's slicing up smoked turkey. But I'll take out my phone and look at the verse of the day. These are resources that we can engage God's word and let it begin to challenge and conform us. The last one I'd say is the Bible Project. Um, they have phenomenal videos that are clear, they're concise, and they're excellent quality. They make biblical concepts really approachable to people like you and I, who genuinely, and I say that sincerely because I don't get everything in the Bible. It's entirely free, it's well done. And I'd invite you to try that. So that's kind of practically, if you're willing to check out God's word. And by the way, that's a big part. Like my whole message is trying to get you to do that. Just so you like kind of can see the, see the behind the scenes here, okay? The second thing though is be aware of who the acting agent is. When I come to the Bible, is it scripture speaking into my life? Or is it me looking for affirmations and amens to what I already believe? I would say the best way to do that is to borrow an ancient prayer that Christians have used for a long time. It goes like this. Come, Holy Spirit, come. And what you're doing, and that might feel too passive for you, then fine, pray a long prayer if it makes you feel better about life. But, but the truth is that the Holy Spirit, I'm sorry, I'm joking, the Holy Spirit will enter that space and use God's word 
to speak into your life to bring health and life and thriving. And the last one is this, read scripture in community. I think it's important that we get out of silos. There's a place to spend daily time with God's word and let it conform us, but there's a space to bring that into the community. At Waterstone, this is just our program that we have. I think it's a great program, by the way, but I just want to name small groups is not the destination. It's not the goal. I will argue it's the best vehicle to that goal is getting in a small group with people who live around you or are different ages or same season of life or whatever you're looking for and say, yeah, I want to study scripture and community. But that, that is the way that we provide for you all to engage that. We're going to end with a song called Good, Good Father. And I'm going to ask, if you would, to let that be a moment of realigning. You are perfect in all of your ways. Some of you, like me, your Thomas Jefferson inside speaks up and says, I don't know about that. And that's okay. But I'd encourage you to put the scissors away, not cut the tension, but actually sit in it and see what God gives you in that space. The way I want to end our service in a moment, I'm going to invite you to stand. And we're going to read a few verses from Psalm 19, which really says God's word is supreme. But as we do this, I'm going to ask that this is a response for you. I won't know if it is. Your wife's not going to know or a friend you came with or kid. But I'm going to ask that you would let this be a response for your trust and realignment. I don't understand everything you've got for me, but I'm willing to let your word speak into me. So would you stand with me as we read Psalm 19? Thank you. Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. The word of the Lord.